Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 1. Last Sunday we started looking at the book of Ruth. And the Lord willing, when I come back, we will continue. What we found is that in the first five verses of this book is a dark and bleak background. And the rest of the story is set against that background. It begins in Bethlehem, which for us, I think, has very different connotations. We think about the birth of Jesus. But as I mentioned last week, if you read the Bible in the order that it is set in the canon, the last two stories in the book of Judges, which are horrible stories, one about idolatry and then one about rape, that leads uh, to a woman being dismembered and uh, battle as a result. These begin in Bethlehem. So when we come to a third story about Bethlehem or that begins in Bethlehem, this does not bode well. This is not something, I mean, it doesn't seem like this can be good. All three stories are great tragedies. And so the book of Ruth begins as a tragedy. Um, It begins with a famine. A famine in a small part of Bethlehem known as Ephrathah. There are, there are a family of four. Elimelech is the father, and Naomi is the mother, and then they have two sons, Malon and Kilion. Elimelech takes his family away from Bethlehem, and he moves to Moab, a political enemy of Israel and a pagan culture. As I mentioned last week, this first five verses, there's just irony upon irony here. That Elimelech means my God is king, and yet when there's a famine, he leaves. And Ephrathah actually means fruitful. So you could say in the fruitful place there was a famine. And the man whose name was my God is king left and went to live among the pagans. While he is in Moab, Elimelech dies. His two sons marry Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. And then the two sons die. And Naomi is left alone and the family line has ended. There will be no more descendants from this particular line. If you look at verse number five, we read Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. So what the reader is left with is, in fact, a dark background, or if you do theater, a darkened stage where what you have basically is sheer darkness. The calamities that are described in these first five verses set the stage for something to happen which normally doesn't happen in Jewish literature or narrative, and that is that a woman will become the main character. And that is Naomi, and then later on it is Ruth. If you look at verse number 6, when she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. As I mentioned last week, for me this is the verse in the book of Ruth. This This is the one that would be in gold letters. Um, I tend to think of it more in the King James, and the ESV follows the King James here. She heard in Moab how that the Lord had visited his people. It doesn't mean to call on briefly to visit someone, but rather to take note of, to look after. We find it in various places, usually in connection with redemption. When Moses went to Egypt to tell the Israelites that God was going to redeem them, and the people believed when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. And we hear it in the first verse of Zechariah's song. 
Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Doesn't mean that Zechariah understood what was going on with this child, John, who would be known as John the Baptist later on. And the Israelites in Egypt, they didn't know about the ten plagues and going through the Red Sea and all of that. But what they did know is that God had visited his people. Naomi doesn't know all that's going on, but she has heard that God has visited his people and providing for them. And here's the first indication we have that Naomi has not bought in to the pagan worship of Moab. She doesn't worship Baal. She doesn't worship Astarte. But in fact, she worships the God of Israel. She's been in Moab for over 10 years, perhaps much longer than that. But we know where her heart is and who she trusts in. The Lord. The Lord is the one who comes to meet the needs of his people. He is the one who provides, as in our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. We who live in the city oftentimes tend to forget certain things. And at this point, it might do us well to remember that ultimately it is God who stocks the grocery shelves and not the grocer. It is God who provides our daily bread. The Lord's visitation and his providing make a hopeful turning point in the story. It is, if you wish, if you have a darkened stage, a spotlight comes on. There is, in fact, hope. And Naomi is going to return home. It also marks the end of her long and bitter exile. She's going home. So we read in verse number 7, if you look at it in verse number 7, With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. She's returning to Bethlehem, the land of Judah. But she has no husband. She has no sons. But she has two daughters-in-law that are going with her. By the way, the way that this is written, it is quite clear that Naomi is leading the way. There are three widows who are on the road, but she is the matriarch, if you wish. She is the oldest of the three, and she is the one who is in charge. And it sets the stage for three exchanges that occur in the rest of chapter 1. If you look at verses 8 through 10, 8, 9, and 10, then Naomi said to her, daughter, her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud, and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. Here in verse number 8, Naomi breaks the silence of this book. Up to this point, there's been no talking, if you wish. There's been no voice. We have a narrator who's telling us what is going on, but no one has spoken. And Naomi begins to speak, and this opens up a lengthy conversation. It also marks the primary literary figure, or not figure, but uh, feature of this book, and that is dialogues. Of the 85 verses, 56 in this book deal with dialogue. So after a voiceless introduction, the prologue, suddenly we have someone speaking, and it is Naomi. What we find here is that she begins with a command, actually two commands. The NIV has it as one. Um, in the ESV and the King James, they have go return, um, whereas here it simply says go back in the NIV. 
There are two imperatives. In the absence of any male figure, she is the head of this family. She has the right to issue imperatives or commands. And so she tells them that they are to return home. By the way, that's exactly what she's doing. She's returning home. Now she wants them to return to their home in Moab. I find it striking that she tells them, each of them to return to their mother's home. Um, one might reasonably expect in ancient cultures that you would say, go back to your father's home. He's the one who provides. He's the one who protects. But here she says, return to your mother's home. And so it's been suggested that this is a reference to marriage, that in fact it is in the mother's room, if you wish, where marriages are arranged, uh, that the details are set up. And so the idea is go back to your mom's home so you can find another husband. It is not go back to your dad's home so he can take care of you the rest of your life, but go home so your mother can find you another husband. But Naomi doesn't simply give these two daughters-in-law two commands. She then speaks two blessings on them. By the way, we, when looking at bless and blessing, we notice that the Creator is the source of all blessing. And while we may pronounce a blessing on someone, or we may say to someone, bless you, we see this from time to time in the Old Testament, or even if we curse someone, and we see this as well in the Old Testament, no blessing, no cursing can become functional without the assent of God. So you can bless people all you want. If it is not God who is the source of that blessing, it's not going to happen. And so Naomi speaks to bless her daughters-in-law, and she does so in the name of the God of Israel, because he is the source of all blessing. May the Lord show kindness to you, as you have shown to your dead and to me. Some have argued that this is actually sort of a formula, that we find it elsewhere in the Old Testament, that it isn't simply a saying of goodbye, like go home, return, go to your mom's house, and goodbye. But rather it is saying our relationship, your obligations toward me are ended. No longer consider me your mother-in-law. Go home to your mother. Find another husband. Um, you don't owe me anything anymore. Our relationship has ended. They've cared for her sons when they were alive. They have cared for her. Um, and now she prays that God will, in fact, provide and take care of them. It has been suggested that Naomi's statement provides a glimpse into her utter hopelessness. She cannot repay their kindness. And so she turns to God. She turns them over to God's care and says, listen, I can't do anything for you, but may the Lord grant you these things. The word used points to compassion. They have cared for her sons. They have cared for her. Now she wants the God of Israel to provide and care for them. I do find it striking that Naomi invokes the God of Israel for at least two reasons. First of all, after all she's been through, she left home because of a famine. She lived in a pagan society. She lost her husband. She lost her two sons. Um, one might be surprised that she even appeals to God. Because what has God done for her? Look at all of the things that she has been through. After all, she doesn't say to them, May the Lord show kindness to you as he has to me. 
but she still invokes the name of God. And secondly, perhaps what is more surprising is they aren't in Israel. The Lord is the God of Israel. And in the ancient world, wherever you lived, you had your own deity there. And if you're outside of your home area, then the deity might not be functional. For her to say, may the God of Israel, when she says the Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, she is in fact invoking the name of the God of Israel. She assumes that his authority, that his presence is not limited to the other side of the Dead Sea. Moab is on the east side, Judah is on the west side. But the God of Israel may also, in fact, he has presence, he has authority, even in Moab. And this is not a small belief, particularly in light of her circumstances. The second blessing is, may the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. This is, in fact, another way of saying what she said in the first blessing. Um, not simply to stay in their mother's house, but in fact, to go to the house of another husband, to find another husband. This points to settled security, that they would find rest. This, by the way, is a synonym for the promised land, that there they would find a husband who would provide for them, uh, would give them children, they'd have safety, they would have food if they had a husband. And in a certain way, there would be a freedom from anxiety. They would be provided for. This is something which only God can give. And that's why Naomi invokes the name of the Lord. He is the one who gives. And he can do so in Moab. It isn't just in Israel. It isn't just in Judah. But it is anywhere that the God of Israel can provide for them. Having given them two commands to the two daughters-in-law and two blessings, she then kisses them and they wept aloud. She has said goodbye with a double imperative and a double blessing, and now she wants them to leave. These women are not robots. They are human beings. There's great emotion involved here. They have been together for at least ten years. They have all suffered loss. And it is not a time of Skyping or cell phones where you can be in contact when she says goodbye to these daughters, it is probably the last time she will see them. It is a time of great sorrow. But the two daughters-in-law refuse. They do not listen to her commands. They do not do as she tells them. Instead, they say, we will go back with you to your people. This leads to the second exchange, the second part of the conversation in verses 11, 12, and 13. They are going to sacrifice as she has sacrificed for them. Look, if you would, at verses 11, 12, and 13. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who would become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was, there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. Again, there's a double imperative. There is, in fact, firmness, but also tenderness. Return home, my daughters, both in verses 11 and 12. 
And here we don't hear a double blessing, as we did in the first part of the conversation. But here she drives it home with a series of rhetorical questions and then a hypothetical situation. Why would you come with me? In other words, explain yourselves. There is no logical reason why you should come with me. I'm a widow, you're widows. Okay? I have no food, I have no money, you don't either. I'm going back to a place that you don't know, to people you don't know. There is no reason for you to come with me. Could it be that you think I might provide you with new husbands? And this is the second part. Am I going to have more sons who could become your husbands? The ESV interestingly says, have I yet sons in my womb? Do you think I'm still carrying sons in my body that I can give birth to so that you can marry them? And so there's a hypothetical case that she, speaks, that she gives. Um, Naomi says, listen, if I got married today and got pregnant tonight and had sons, would you wait for them to grow up so that they would marry you? This seems rather bizarre on the face of it. And some have argued that she is talking about something in the Old Testament known as levirate marriage. Um, it comes from the Latin word lever, which means husband's brother. It is explained in Deuteronomy chapter 25. If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of her brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. This was, in fact, the custom among God's people even before the law was given. And we find this in Genesis chapter 38 in the story of Tamar. It's interesting that both Ruth and Tamar are ancestors of the Lord Jesus. The story is told that uh, Tamar marries the oldest son of Judah, Jacob's son. But uh, his, uh, Ur was his name. He was a wicked man, and so God killed him. Judah tells the second son, Onan, okay, you need to go in and fulfill your, your duty as a brother-in-law to your sister-in-law. God kills him as well for his wickedness. And then Judah says to Tamar, Go back to your dad's house, and when my third son, whose name is Shelah, when he reaches appropriate age, then he will marry you. And we are told, by the way, that Judah was sort of afraid that, good night, my, husband, my, my two sons have been with this woman, and they both died. What's going to happen to my third son? Well, Tamar realizes as Shelah is growing up, they're not going to keep their word. And so she uh, practices deceit on Judah. She gets pregnant uh, as a result. And we see this, that this is part of the lineage of the Lord Jesus. But it was the custom in Israel, and then it becomes the law in the Mosaic law. And the, the purpose of this is so that a family line will not end. We have Elimelech, we have Malon and Kilion, and then we don't have anything. So it's been suggested that that's what that Naomi is saying. I'm not going to have any more sons. I, in fact, don't think this is what Naomi is saying at all. Uh, because if she did marry and have sons, they would not, by blood, be related to Elimelech, Kilian, and Melon, and so the levirate marriage thing would not apply. I think what Naomi is saying is simply this. My situation is hopeless. It is utterly and completely hopeless. Why would you tie yourself to me? 
why would you connect yourself with me? My situation is, it's not desperate. It's not desperate. It's hopeless. There's absolutely no hope for me whatsoever. And it isn't simply that she's an old woman. I think as we read this, we might think, well, it's, yeah, because she's old and she... Uh, some commentators have even suggested she's already into menopause and so she can't get pregnant. I don't think that's what she's saying at all. Because she, in fact, says, the Lord's hand has been against me. This is not a question of age. This is a question of God's acting against her. In the Old Testament, the hand of the Lord symbolized the irresistible power of God. And we find it time and time again when it speaks about God going out against the enemies of his people, that the hand of the Lord was against Egypt, for example. But here we have that the hand of God, of the Lord, has gone out against me. In Naomi's eyes, the Lord has attacked her as his enemy. If this is true, to follow her back to Bethlehem would be sheer disaster. These two young women need to choose another path. She's been through famine, exile, bereavement, and hypothetical childlessness. Um, This might, in fact, be only the beginning. For all she knows, it's a downward spiral. And then when she gets home, it's going to be even worse than she could have imagined. So why would they go with her? They should shun her. They should avoid her. They should run away from her. They should go back home to a place of safety. But let's understand something important. Naomi affirms something. She acknowledges that despite all appearances, things are not out of control. Naomi does not see herself as a victim of circumstances. Rather, she acknowledges that God is involved. And though she doesn't say it, there is a hint that If God has done this, then God might well straighten things out. In verses 14 to 18, we have the third exchange. If you look beginning of verse 14. At this they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. Then Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her. Or when she realized this, she stopped urging her. What Naomi had to say was deeply emotional. And so again, we read of the three widows. One can just picture them on a a dirt road, on the path, making their way back to Judah and having this intense conversation. And they weep. But now there is a change, and that is she has persuaded one of them, Orpah, and Orpah returns to Moab. But she has not convinced Ruth. Ruth clings to her. One might say, and I I emphasize that, might say that Orpah chose probability in in Moab of finding another husband rather than a risky venture in Judah. Orpah did the sensible thing. 
And more than that, she obeyed her mother-in-law. You will notice that her actions are not criticized at all. The narrator does not say anything negative about Orpah and her choices. Ruth, on the other hand, does the extraordinary and unexpected. She apparently is willing to abandon the sensible. And so Orpah walks off stage and now we're left with two women, with two widows, Naomi and Ruth. Naomi again tries to persuade Ruth to go home. And she points to Orpah's example. <clears throat> Look, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. And for the fourth and final time, Naomi commands Ruth to go home, go back with her. I do find it interesting, I don't know if you do, that Naomi, in referring to Orpah's example, speaks of her people and her gods, not your people and your gods. But in any case, a new voice is heard. Up to this point, it's, it's all been... Naomi, now we hear Ruth, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. By the way, this is an imperative. This is a command. Her mother-in-law has been giving her all of these commands and now she turns around and basically gives a command back. Um, Don't urge me. Don't tell me to go back. Don't tell me to leave you. And why, why not? Because where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. As one writer put it, with the ring of poetry, the now familiar words soar on the wings of rhythm. Ruth will go, but not as Naomi once, back to Moab, but with Naomi to Judah. She will go with Naomi with all that that involves. She will settle with her. She will adopt the nationality of Naomi. She will adopt the faith of Naomi. All of these, by the way, include a renunciation of Moab as her place to stay, of her people, her nationality, of her religion. More than that, it is a turning back on, turning her back, if you wish, on her family, on the familiar, on familiar surroundings back in Moab, and on her religious upbringing. She's turning to a new and different place, a new and different people, a new and different God. The statement by Ruth on many levels is amazing, but one that strikes me is, your God will be my God. Why do I find this striking? It seems like, it seems like a reasonable thing to say. Well, do you remember the last thing that Naomi said about God? Look at verse number 13. The Lord's hand has gone out against me. One might say, Ruth, did you just hear what Naomi said? You want the God whose hand is against her? You want this to be your God? This is the God that you choose to follow? Naomi, or Ruth says yes. And though impressive, the promises could be seen as applying only to Naomi's lifetime. We don't know how old Naomi was. We can see the possibility of her not having that much time left. I mean, she's an older woman. Um, Which means that Ruth could stay with her till she died and then go back home to Moab. Maybe she's young enough, she can find a husband and she can sort of reintegrate into her own society. Return to her family, to return to the familiar and to her faith. But Ruth continues, where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. 
She's made a lifelong decision. She intends to spend the rest of her years, even after Naomi is gone, in Judah. We don't know what people in the Old Testament thought about life after death. It's not clear. But the expression that we find used over and over again is of someone resting with their fathers. In Deuteronomy chapter 31, the Lord told, told Moses he was going to die. And this is what he said. You are going to rest with your fathers. And then in Second Samuel, uh, the Lord made a promise to David through Nathan, the prophet, about his descendants. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers. And so the sense is, after you die, you are still with your people. You rest with your people. And so what Ruth is saying is, when I die, I'm not going to rest with my people in Moab. I will rest with your people. You know, where you die, I will die. And where you're buried, that is where I will be. I mean, this is, in fact, a true commitment that she makes to Naomi. She wants to be united with her in life and in death. And then one more thing. Ruth invokes the name of the God of Israel in making her pledge. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. These dialogues open with two blessings, where Naomi says to the two daughters-in-law, May the Lord. And they close with Ruth looking to the Lord to confirm her oath. In the ancient world, people appealed to their God in order to confirm or to enforce an oath. Uh, People today oftentimes say, swear to God or uh, my hand to God, which to me, and this is just my opinion, when people say that, it means they're lying. They're they're just trying to strengthen it. Um, In the ancient world, if you really believed in a God and you swore by that God, that was something fairly, I mean, people would take that seriously. When Ruth invokes the name of Jehovah, of Yahweh, the God of Israel, she affirms that, in fact, he is her God. She has cast her lot with her mother-in-law. And what we see is that there is not only the relationship that she has with Naomi, but also with God. Geographically, covers all future locations. In terms of chronology, until she dies and beyond. She embraces the God of Israel. And now this Moabitess is entering into the people of God. After this intense dialogue, it's almost as though we sort of need a break. The narrator sort of breaks in and he continues with the story. Verse number 18, when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. And then he continues in verse number 19. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. It starts with a wonderful picture of the townspeople recognizing there are two new people coming into town and then they recognize Naomi after all of these years. Certainly her, her face must have changed. She must be, I mean, she is older, but somehow they were, they, can this be her? 
Remember years ago when she and Elimelech left, and now she's come back. Naomi, as I would remind you, means pleasant, delightful, lovely. She says, don't call me that. Call me Mara, which means bitter. And she gives four reasons why she should be called bitter. The Almighty has made my life very bitter. The Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has afflicted me. And the Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Again, Naomi does not blame her circumstances. She points the finger to God. And yet in this, there is profound faith. As David, several generations later, would write, Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Naomi refers to God at the beginning and at the end of her complaint as the Almighty, Shaddai in Hebrew. We encounter this name primarily in the book of Genesis. The first time we hear it is in Genesis chapter 17, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. The Lord then reveals himself as the God who can transform a person's hopelessness. He's 99 years old, and yet he's promised him a son. God is the one who, in fact, can provide. When Jacob sends Benjamin to Egypt, he doesn't want to, but the ruler in Egypt, they don't know it's Joseph, has insisted that he come. He says to his sons, may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. Jacob speaks of hope, hope in God in, again, a very uncertain time, almost a time of hopelessness. And then before he dies, as as Jacob is blessing his sons, he says about Joseph, because of your father's God who helps you, because of the Almighty who blesses you with the blessings of heaven above and the blessings of the deep that lie below. He goes on to speak of the fact that God has prospered Joseph in spite of the difficulties he faced. I mean, his brothers hated him. They sold him into slavery. And then you know the story how that Potiphar's wife uh, lies about him. He ends up in prison. And yet, the Almighty has taken care of him. So when Naomi says, the Almighty, not once but twice, I don't hear bitterness. Certainly she has gone through very, very difficult times. But I think it is as though she is saying, you see the bitterness I have experienced. Famine, loss, questionings, partings, hopelessness. I know God as Shaddai, as Almighty. And I leave the explanation and even the responsibility for this bitterness with him. We sang in our first hymn today, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. This is who Naomi speaks of. And I don't hear blame here. I don't hear bitterness against God. I hear her saying, this is what God has done. And by the way, if God has done this, then God can, in fact, bring hope back into her life. And then the last verse of this chapter, the narrator sort of sums up. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. I'll just point out that the narrator sort of brackets this chapter. It begins with a time reference in the time of the judges, 
There's a famine in Bethlehem. And then it closes Bethlehem, not famine, but the barley harvest. And then the time frame, it is the beginning of the barley harvest. In our, our calendar, end of April, beginning of May. And so what started out as a darkened stage, a black background, now there is something going on. It's not so dark. And perhaps God Almighty will redeem this situation. There's so much here, and we've seen many things today. But for me, it all starts with Naomi's double blessing of her daughters-in-law. She still has faith that God can work these things out. And the story follows Ruth. But have you ever considered what happened to Orpah? Remember that Naomi pronounced a blessing on her as well. Could it be that God granted to her what he did to Ruth? I would say absolutely. Because he isn't simply God in Judah. He's God in Moab as well. They may not believe in him, but he has presence. He has authority. And I mean, we have the book of Ruth. We don't have the, the book of Orpah in our Bible. But that's not to say that God did not do for her as Naomi had asked. What are we to make of this? It's interesting, as I've read various commentators writing about this, um, they usually say we need to be more like Ruth. We need to have the faith of Ruth. Um, one writer put it this way, one may understand Orpah, one must emulate Ruth. I'm not sure that's what the writer of the book of Ruth wants from us, from the reader. What I hear the narrator telling us as he tells us this story is in a situation in which it appears that God is absent, he absolutely is not absent. He is, in fact, quite present every step of the way. Even in famine, even in Moab, and even in the deaths of Elimelech, Malon, and Kilion, God is there. And while Naomi may come across in this first chapter as a bitter old woman, I don't hear that. Obviously, her life has been difficult and she has suffered tremendous loss. But this is someone who doesn't say it's because of the economic situation, you know, it's because of a weather change, climate change, it's because of all these various circumstances. No, she says this is God's doing. Which is another way of saying God did this and God can fix this. And she puts her faith in God. And that, if we are to emulate anyone in this first chapter at least, it is, it is in fact Naomi. Who in the midst of tremendous darkness and tremendous loss can speak of God as the Almighty. That he is the Almighty. And she knows that he can, in fact, turn her situation from utter hopelessness to one of joy, which is how the book of Ruth will end. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and for this book of Ruth. And I thank you for the example of Naomi who, from human appearances, has been battered by her circumstances. So we, we would feel justified in, in seeing her as a bitter old woman.
the one who has suffered so much. But that's if we don't listen to her. If we don't hear her invoke your name, even in a foreign land. And even in speaking of her sorrow and her bitterness, referred to you as the Almighty. The Almighty who gave Abraham a son, even though he was a hundred years old. The Almighty who delivered Joseph and provided for him in the midst of harassment on every hand. She has lost her husband, her sons. She was in exile. But to her, you're still the Almighty. Lord God Almighty. How easily we forget that. When things don't quite go our way. We blame our circumstances. Or we may blame you, not seeing you as Almighty but as one who didn't jump quickly enough to answer our prayers, who didn't do when what, what we wanted when we wanted it. May we, like Naomi, see you as God Almighty, in charge of all things. And may we look to you in faith. I pray for the congregation you've committed to my care that you would watch over them while I'm away for the men who will be preaching that you would help them as they prepare. By your grace, may we be reunited in a few weeks. I thank you that you brought us together today to worship you on this rainy day. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.